The title of this message is the most important test you will ever have to take in your life. Pastor Ulysses did it for me, so I always do this, uh, especially the church I visit for the first time after I began this ministry. Uh, so I'm uh, on YouTube, also Instagram, and also our website. I have my blog. I just pressing matters in our society that often results in hostility, confusion, and division. I believe uh, the approach that I take is comprehensive approach, ultimately grappling uh, with what it means through the lens of scriptures. I think I'm trained in this area. My doctorate was in postmodernism 30 years ago. I anticipated this coming. I didn't know that it was going to be like this. You may not agree with everything I have to say, but you'll be engaged because uh, it is very important. So let me put it out for you. Check me out. Uh, if you don't like it, just you can interact with me. Uh, I understand. And also, se habla español. There are about eight or nine entries in español. I need to do more, but uh, I've been lazy about that lately. It's harder to do it in Spanish, but uh, it's there. And also, uh, some of the uh, pressing matters that I deal with in in my blog. So, while our hearts go out to those who lost family members to COVID, the fact is that an overwhelming majority of us who failed the COVID test, uh, you know, tested positive, that is, we have recovered, I have recovered myself in January. But the test I'm referring to, if we fail this one, its repercussion is for this life and beyond. So there is no competition. This is much weighty test that you don't want to fail. I'm going to start this uh, talk by way of uh, talking about, uh, whoops, uh, let me go back. Okay, I gotta get used to this. I've never seen a remote control like this. It's like a phone. Um, I have had like 20, 30 remote control. This is the first time I've ever seen something like this. So I began with kind of strange question. Paul, why so many chapters? Uh, second, third, two letters written to the Corinthian church in total, 29 chapters, Romans, singular letter, 16 chapters, and then Thessalonians 5 and 3, 8. So, Paul, why so many chapters to the Corinthian church? Something about the Corinthian church. I believe it was founded during his second missionary trip, 49 to 52. So I hazard to guess maybe year 50 is when he went to the first time. And he wrote this letter in year 55, when he was in Ephesus. He was there. Now, it is important that you kind of take a look at the geography. Um, It's about uh, 430 miles uh, from Ephesus to go to to Corinth. Uh, I don't know how long it would have taken to get there, but I did some research. So by bus and uh, boat, this this age is 17 hours. So back then, uh, if you took road, it'd be much longer, boat and uh, walking. So it's pretty far distant. It's very important that you notice that. I won't tell you why it's important right now. And uh, he would go to that place uh, in year 50-ish to found a church. And then he would go there uh, for the second visit in 2 Corinthians 13.1. But I would put that in quote right now because it may not be his second visit. It could be his future third visit. Why are you so minutely detailed about this? It is very critical that you know this because we're trying to get into the heart of a pastor who was very concerned about a congregation that held a very soft spot in his heart. Corinth is a very well-known city, as you well know. Uh, It was a commercially very prosperous city that was known for a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, Venus in Rome, among Romans, you know, goddess of love, love is more like it, fertility, had thousand prostitutes, a temple, it was all in the name of religion, so it drew a lot of sailors from all over the world, it was incredibly immoral town. In fact, I read that it became a verb, let's Corinthianized means let's go immoral, that's the town or city we're talking about. So, there's much to be said about that, but I limit my introduction about the city to that. The question then was, uh, Paul, why so many chapters, right? 29. 
And I think one day, I mean, this is a question I raised many years ago. And after having, I still have three kids, but uh, as I was raising my kids, I remember one kid was getting more attention than other two. So it's like parents pay more attention to a child more problematic. This kid is drinking, lying, cheating, but the other kid, not so much. He's studious, goes to church. Uh, you know, make sure that if you do have a kid who is more problematic, that you pay attention to the one who doesn't cause problems because they don't think that, they don't really know what's going on, so they may think that they don't love me because they don't spend time with me. Well, the Corinthians were a very, very problematic child. But why are you using that personal, uh, like, uh, uh, a Corinthian church is, Father through the gospel. You know, he founded many churches, had relationship with them, but in terms of expressing that personal endearment, Corinthian church received that. I don't know why. He loved all the churches that he founded, but this one uh, was very special to him. I became your father through the gospel. And he became a very concerned parent. So right before verse 15, above it, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. See? I, I'm really worried, my dear child. Now, verse 21. What do you prefer? Should I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Like you tell your kid, I will listen if I were you when I'm being nice. Because I have other options. So what was concerning this father? Well, this is what you will find reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This is the shortest version, first of all. From the get-go in verse chapter 1, verse 1, the, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we have a problem with division among believers. I'm a Paul. Oh, yeah, I'm a Peter. Well, I'm of Apollos. Oh, yeah, I'm of Jesus. It was a division. That's not all. There was also strife and jealousy over spiritual gifts. What kind of gift you got? A gift of folding a bulletin? <laughs> I got gift of healing, tongues, and prophecy. If you're afoot, I get rid of you because I don't need you. If you're familiar with this, this is First Corinthians chapter 12 stuff. And then there was also, it was reflecting the city, rampant sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. That's not all. There was litigation among the church members. I will see you in court among members. That's enough. <laughs> no, not really. This one is hard to believe. There was intoxication during the committee. They used real wine. And they drank too much, and they got drunk. Details, another sermon. That was hard to really understand for me. And also, there was a theological problem with syncretism. You see, this city used to be dedicated to a center of worship for Dionysius, Bacchus in Roman. It was God of wine and raw meat. I think that's why they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, because leftover meat was sold to the market. And some Christians who should know better were eating these meats. So it raised concern. Hey, eating meat, sacrifice idol, that's like a syncretism, mixing God and demons together. So that was the logical issue. That's enough, right? Well, there are more, but one that tops it all, and this one is really hard to fathom. There was a problem of incest in the church. A man was living with his stepmother. And this is Corinth, the most immoral city in Greece. And yet Paul said, a kind that does not occur even among pagans. This doesn't happen among those immoral Corinthians, and you're doing it in the church. 
Sorry. <laughs> I usually have that kind of effect. But not only that, the church itself got very personal with their spiritual father, Paul. They were very close. Sometimes when we are too close, we're not very careful. So they, and Paul heard through the grapevine that they were saying, Paul, you ugly. Aren't you making that up? No. He said, they said, I heard you say, in person, unimpressive. So most of the painting about Paul, you won't ever see Robert Redford. That's my generation. I don't know what the cute guys you guys think it is. But they've never used cutest actor to portray Paul. There's a reason for that. You ugly. And then second, you, you bad speaker. Second Corinthians 10.10, 10, in person, unimpressive. His speaking amounts to nothing. Idiote in Greek. And that's not all. You know, Paul is the original apostle, but if you want to be really, really like, you know, it's uh, not a bad word. Uh, what was it called? Uh, really like technical about it. He wasn't the original 12. Well, they did say, you are inferior to the super apostle, the original 12. <laughs> oh, they were hurting him. You see? Right. So the question was, a very concerned parent, right? So why is this? What, what is the root of your problem, my dear children? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he calls them, by the way, sure looks like unbelievers to me, <laughs> acting like that, but he doesn't go there. He calls them Adelphas, brothers. In the Bible, when one is first a brother, that means he's a believer. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly male infants in crime. So he's assessing the root of the problem. In short, you are saved, but so immature. Therefore, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. So, whew, oh, although I'm acting really badly, my spiritual father thinks that I'm still saved. I'm going to heaven, but I'm immature. Right. Now, got to pay attention now. I may really confuse you, but I have no choice because what I'm about to present to you all comes from 2 Corinthians. It is confusing. Now, as I said before, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians were written in the same year. Maybe one was written in the spring and later in the fall of year 55. Almost all commentators will agree on that. So 2 Corinthians 13.2, written a few months after the first letter, you're going to see a flurry of activities between the 1 Corinthians and the 2 Corinthians. It's been five years since he visited Corinth for the first time. Or is it? First, he wrote this, 2 Corinthians 13, 2. Now, 2 Corinthians, written a few months after 1 Corinthians, year 55. Hey, kids, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. No. He already visited that city between the first letter and the second letter. Now, it was not an easy trip. He was in Ephesus, and he made a singular trip to go to Corinth and come back. Today, you do that with bus and boat. It's 18 hours. I'm sure it took a lot longer than for him to do that. Why did you do that? And he said, I gave you a warning. Apparently, however, and this, you have to stay up with me now. There's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, right? It is also believed that there was another letter he wrote between the 1st and 2nd. And this is attested by 2 Corinthians 2.9, the reason I wrote you. So, and then 2 Corinthians 7.8, I caused you sorrow by my letter. Those two reference is not referring to the 1 Corinthians. He's referring to Another letter that he wrote after 1 Corinthians was written, 
And he's talking about it in the second Corinthians. He wrote another letter to them. Don't lose me now. I got another one. And then maybe this refers to the person who carried the letter. Or maybe it was a separate visit. But he sent Titus during this time to go visit the Corinthian church. Quote, I urged Titus to go to you, Corinthians, and I sent our brother with him. So two guys were sent to Corinth. Titus did not export you, did he? So two guys were sent by Paul to go to Corinth, all between the spring of 55 and the fall of 55. There was a visit by Paul, there was a letter by Paul, and there was a visit by these two guys who may be in the letter carrier or separate from the letter that was sent earlier. And then in 13.1, he says, I'm going to go back again. Thus he said, this will be my first visit to you. I'm going to go again. In my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Uh, this is tough talk. Parents sometimes have to do tough talk. You already saw that he saw himself as a spiritual father. You see, in the second letter and or during the second visit, he warned them to repent. How do we know? Chapter 12, verse 21. Have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. They've been warned through second letter. That's not inspired because it's not in the Bible, but still important to note. Paul went there to tell him, and then Titus went there. What was it about? Stop it. You saw what they were doing, right? Stop it. Can you be distinguished as a believer? Stop acting worse than the Corinthians. Yes. Something was keeping Pastor Paul up at night. Pastors? turn in their bed thinking about the same thing. You see, he was concerned about their spiritual welfare. When he wrote the first letter in spring of 55, you're saved, but you're very immature. But in the second Corinthians, very last chapter, he drops a bomb on them. He goes there. It's like this. A doctor says to her patient, uh, you cannot come every week to have me examine your upper body. So between the annual visit, look for these things in your upper body, you know, self-examination. If you have that in mind, what you're about to read will be easier to understand. 2 Corinthians 13 is written to the church, Corinthian church. It's about self-examination. So where did Paul go? All right. In the earlier letter, he was being generous, I think. Yeah, you're safe, but maybe immature. But here, he goes further than that. Hey, Corinthians, my dear kids, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself whether Christ Jesus is in you. Unless, of course, if you fail the test. The fail the test part comes later. I'm going to talk about it a little later. So he went there. What do you think that means? Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. A little Greek lesson here. So you notice that there are actually Two phrases that are similar, examine yourself, test yourself, synonyms. So it could be that they both come from the same Greek word, because in translation, same Greek word can produce two different English translations, but not in this case. Two words, dokimatso, paraiso, are two words from which we get the word prove or test, examine. So dokimatso and both, paraiso, to prove. The difference between dokimatso is to prove something good. Someone good or acceptable. And paraiso is to prove what? Just the opposite. Now, test yourself that you see here, 
that's mentioned after examining yourself is dokimatsu. So it's in there. However, the word that one will focus on is paraiso, and that is proof that one has been evil, bad, wicked, look for bad things. And that is what's behind the word, examine yourself. So look for bad apples. Look for the bad, look, anytime a woman checks their upper body, they're looking for a bad thing. They're not looking for, right? So it is paraiso. When you put egg in front of that, become temptation. Apply only to the devil, four times in the New Testament. Examine yourself. At the same time, you have to note that that is a command. Examine yourself. But it's given in what we call present imperative in Greek. There are two types of imperative in Greek. Aorist imperative, that basically means clean your room. You know, mom telling the boy, clean the room. So one time deal, but it must be done right away because the guests are coming. Clean the room. So there's no obligation to clean tomorrow. It's just one deal. But when it's present imperative, it is keep, leave the room clean. It's continuous action. So it's not one time you examine yourself. Continue to examine yourself. A doctor will tell the women, just examine yourself one time. Are you kidding? Continue to examine yourself periodically. Look for what? Look for bad spiritual lumps. Because those lumps would suggest that something is going on that is no good. In this case, Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. You do have lumps. You fail the test. So here we get the word dokimaso, the same word, but you add the negative, ah. Just like English and Spanish, you put ah, it negates the meaning of the following. So ah dokimaso is not acceptable. Unacceptable. That's what means to fill the test. Therefore, literal translation is you are counterfeit. King James renders it E.B. reprobates. Gotta ask yourself, would a reprobate go to heaven? <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, huh? In the church, we talk about heaven and hell. We're so sophisticated, we deal with all the important issues and we forget the major fundamental issue. <laughs> Are we going to go to heaven? Are we going to go to hell? I'm ahead of myself. Three questions rise from what I just discussed. So, how do you pass the test of whether Christ is in you? That's to ask, how can I know whether I am saved? Basic question. So it comes from, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. I'm not uh, forcing anything here. And second, uh, how did Paul, why did Paul feel the need to raise this question in the first place? And then third question is, where will the one who didn't pass the test end up? Bad English. So, where will the unsaved end up? Once a year, perhaps we should consider this question. Not every Sunday. Then we become a Baptist church. How can I know whether I am saved? Touch yourself to see if Christ Jesus is in you. So something positive, unless you fill the test. <laughs> well, that's easy. By faith, for it is by grace you have been saved. By what? By, 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 by this grace you've been saved by faith. And this is what? A gift of God. And not from yourself, but it is for God to glorify himself by doing all the works to save us, by faith. Not by works so that no one can boast. But faith in what? Faith, not in faith itself, but faith in Jesus, that his death on the cross atoned, paid for the penalty of my sin. We call that substitute death of Jesus Christ. And through faith and repentance, we are saved by faith alone. No works. Well, that was easy. The end. No, it's far from over. Really? Because James makes it difficult to just end it right here. 
James, the brother of Jesus, half brother, 219. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demon believes and shudder. Demon believes in God. He's a monotheist after all. But there's a faith that is not genuine, therefore it doesn't save. You see, devil has faith. He internally assent to the fact that there's one God, and yet he's not saved. One reason we know that he's not saved is that he still did the same thing he did thousands of years ago. He still still killed and destroyed. You see, faith that doesn't save doesn't change. Well, devil has never changed. So Santiago uh, James is very assured of saying that, yeah, demons have faith, but they shudder too. Oh, fearful, but they ain't going to save him. Therefore, he says, verse 14, what good is in my brothers if a man claims to have faith but has no deed? Can such faith save them? Okay, I'm going to just later, but save from what? Save from what? And then verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, so you say with your mouth, I believe, I believe, plus no action, no deed, no change, then James declared that faith without deed is dead to what? To save. Right? So we are saved by faith alone, no works. But works verify whether the faith is genuine. We evangelicals are really bad at talking about works. Fear that people might misunderstand thinking that that guy's presenting work-based salvation. In other words, Ephesians 4.28, anyone who has been stealing, presumably because he wasn't a believer, but he became a believer, so how do we know that he's really saved? Must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. So, if a guy continues to steal and steal some more, poor guy, that was a guy who was doing a looting in Katrina, during Katrina in New Orleans. You always use him as an example. So if the guy said, I believe, I believe, but he does more so than before, then we have the right to question. Does he have genuine faith that saves? Or his alleged faith at the level of demons? <sighs> But that faith hasn't changed demons. They still act very badly. Faith without deed is dead. First John 3, 6 says, no one who lives in him keep on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We're not talking about batting a thousand. But our Christian life is like stock market. I'm not recommending that you buy anything or anything like that. But if you stay there long enough, Sure, it's going to up and down, but it's always gotten up. Like a Christian life. Any given moment, I can take a capture, I can take a picture of any pastor and make him look like an unbeliever because pastors have bad days and they're like, take a picture, look, wait, look at this guy. If I have that kind of wicked mindset, we could do that to any pastor I want. But God does not judge us based on a photograph or a video. With the ending, that will wait until we are done here. I bring in Luther here with this question. Which view represents the true biblical position, in your opinion? Luther, the father of Reformation, said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Very, very pity. Very, very clever statement. In other words, with faith I save alone, but when genuine faith saves us, in time, it will produce fruits. For some people, it could be later than sooner, some people sooner, but sooner or later. However, the second option we have is, this is called free grace. Don't laugh at these guys. These are from Dallas Theological Seminary. Great seminary, great people, but they produce what is called free grace soteriology, salvation. Backed by renowned theologians such as Charles Rowry, Dwight Pentecost, and Zane Hodge. They're all gone now, all PhDs, expert in Greek, and they came up with this theology. This person also is PhD from Dallas. Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who come to faith in him. 
even if they later start believing him for eternal life. I could be off and do no two hours of study on this. You like that? Of course you like it. You mean I can confess Jesus uh, for however long, like a minute or two, and I decide, I don't want Jesus anymore. I'm going to live for my life. I'm still safe. Yes. <laughs> no wonder we got a lot of people out there saying that Christians and that our culture is getting more hellish every day. Now, the question was, do you think that is true even if they later start believing in him for eternal life? Question, which view represents the true biblical position? For Luther, as like I've said, a genuine saving faith will produce good work. But for free grade led by Robert Wilkerson, it is a divorce between faith and work. Faith has nothing to do with anything to do with faith. Certainly it doesn't save us. But it doesn't even verify whether one is truly saved. It's complete divorce. Question, which view represents the true biblical position? I'm not going to be wishy-washy about this. Luther has some issues, not on this one. I believe that is a biblical position. A genuine saving faith will produce good work through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our heart with discipleship. That's the biblical Position. Remember the three question: How do you pass the test of whether Christ is in you? That is, say, how can I know whether I am saved? In the Old Testament, so you understand now the role of works in verifying whether we have genuine faith that saves us, and you understand that this is a very crucial issue for you and I. I mean, we could do a lot of missions and all, but let's do it as believers. Sister Grace one time told me at OTR, you know who she is. You know, all those people come to do wonderful school evangelism, and 90-some people come every year, used to. And she said to me, I don't think 40% of them know Jesus Christ. I go, what? Yeah, they're here to serve, but I don't think 40%. She said, 40%. So can you do a message on just pure gospel? Certainly. So, but in the Old Testament, whether you possess a genuine... In the Old Testament... Whether you possess a genuine faith hinged on producing a specific work. It's still work. You have to produce work to prove that, verify that you truly have a saving faith. But it's specific one-time work. Let me give you an example. So when Abraham was, his wife was sterile and they were very well advanced in age, no kids, but God gave him promise. I'm going to give you a son, son of promise, and through him you're going to have a nation, count the stars, so shall your offspring be. That happened at age 75. Maybe 55 to us right now, but still very old, right? Okay, so he believed. Abraham believed the Lord and God credit to him as righteousness. He believed God's promise. I believe. So not only did he believe, that was considered having saving faith. I'm going to accredit you with righteousness. Okay, but then where's the work? <laughs> a specific work that Abraham had to produce to prove that he really did believe he had to have a conjugal relationship with his old wife. It wasn't going to be a virgin birth. Abraham, go in the tent. God, please. You know, we're old. But you said you believe. But can't you do it like in a miraculous way? This is miraculous way. You know, old people producing a baby. Without that work, he didn't believe. Specific work. It's kind of easy in the Old Testament. Another one. Noah. God to Noah. Make yourself an ark. Genesis 6, 14. Noah, I believe. Noah built an ark. He proved that he believed by building an ark. Noah, build an ark. I believe. <laughs> Noah, what are you doing? I believe you. I, I, you know, ark. Lord, I don't even know what rain is. It is believed that rain hasn't happened yet. Uh, come on, Lord. Uh, you know what? Uh, no. If you don't build an ark, then Hebrew 11.7, he became heir of righteousness that comes by faith, cannot be applied to him. 
You have to produce a specific word. Let's say that he did produce word. Instead of building an ark, he made what is more sensible to them, a cult. That's called bad fruit. He built something that's sensible, but that would be bad fruit. A genuine saving faith affirmed by a specific word carried out immediately. But we don't live in the Old Testament. I think it's easier. But the New Testament, I believe we have a two-tier work system to prove the genuineness of one's faith. Two-tier work system? No, no, first is faith, no? Well, yes, but this is how Jesus put it. Believing itself is work. Heresy, well, I don't know, John 6, 29, when the Jews asked him, what is the work of God? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He did the work, we believe him, so the merit of his work is a credit to him. So it's faith, but interesting how he put it, right? The work of God is it to believe in the one he has sent. So you did that. Now, the second part is followed by not a specific work, but a body of work. Philippians 2.12, uh, content the work of your salvation with fear and trembling. So, body of work. It's a long line of work. Instead of one-off, one singular event that proves that. Look, how can we know that we have changed? Let me give you a very practical way of looking at this. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit needs to confirm without spirit that we're changing. But if I just did that, then, well, that's kind of subjective. Could be, but that's the most important indicator that we are saved. But I'm going to give you a very pragmatic way to approach this. Way of two questions. Has your life changed in any degree after confessing your faith in Christ? Has someone who knows you ever noticed any change in you and told you so? That is not as essential as the testimony of the Holy Spirit that there was my spirit, that I'm a child of God, but that one is more concrete to some of us. Has someone who knows you ever noticed any change in you and told you so? Let me make it even more concrete. I was missionary in Mexico for 11 years. I just visited and came back last month. And that pastor, that pastor is Pastor Javier Almanza, my best friend. Also, the pastor church attended, dear man, 6'3", 300 pounds. He lost some weight, thank God for that. And uh, he, he and I were very close. So Wednesday night, we have a prayer meeting. Baptist prayer meeting is really boring because we got a bunch of lists and just read it, right? So, but I went safely. There was a guy named Galindo. Me did not like him. <laughs> I think the reason is because early on in my days there, he goes, no entiendo español. I don't understand your Spanish. <laughs> Maybe I began to, anyway. He was really weird, all right? It was weird. Right? But he went, so one day, I asked Pastor um, Almanza, oh, man, I, I'm sorry. That's totally wrong for me to show you already. Ah, never mind. So I said, hey, what about Galindo? Now, I didn't really mean that he's not safe, but he's weird. He's... And he, go, he looked at me, oh, him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Era peor. You know what that means in Spanish? Was worse. <laughs> you know, was worse. And immediately I knew, oh, the Galindo is saved. Because he was in that church for 20 years. And he saw, however small of a change, he saw it. So it used to be worse. Yeah. I saw some change in Galindo over the years. He died of cancer many years ago, and he had a rotten first marriage, fought a lot, right? And he used to pray for his divorced wife. I thought that was kind of weird too, right? And then she, the divorced wife, ended up taking care of him because his second wife ran away. After having seen that, I go, oh, I guess the first wife saw changes in him. Let me plug in for staying in one church for a long time. You want to be with a pastor or spiritual authority who knows you really well. That could be your greatest attestment that you are truly saved. But if you change churches, that only the beginning. Like me, I didn't know. I, didn't, I thought he was the worst. But he was actually worse, worse before. He was just a little worse. There was another guy. Him, I won't use a real name. 
Ugo, a dad of three kids who died drunk and alone. That happened many times. At his funeral, families, he had a, he had a beautiful family. I know those kids. They're all grown. I have kids. He's stupid. You could enjoy that right now, but he died 10, 11 years ago. That day, Pastor Almanza chose this text. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen this text used in a funeral, but it kind of fit. He said, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, <laughs> I go, oh, that's not really like friendly verse. After I go, hey, Pastor Almanza, what's up with that verse? Look, I'm not God. I don't know. But everyone in the church knew how he lived. I didn't want to give the impression that you can live like that and still consider of Christian and saved. So I left that question open-ended by simply saying that Ugo is now standing before God to face his final judgment, which is true for everybody. I saw a lot of wisdom in that. In short, he was saying that I saw no change in his life. And that segue to second question, why did Paul feel the need to raise this question? Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Touch yourself whether Christ is in you unless you feel it. Why? Because some of them had not changed even one bit from the year 50 when he visited to year 55 when he began to do flurry activities out of concern and worry for their spiritual status. At first, you're just immature. Now, he's actively wondering, do you even know Jesus Christ? Oh, I believe, I believe. But your action speaks louder than your words sometimes. I see no change. Would you look for spiritual lumps to see whether you have bad fruit? Instead of ark, you make cart. Where will the one who didn't pass the test end up? Where will the unsaved end up? Third question. So I go back to James. I have faith, but no works to show for it. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but have no deed? Can such faith save them? So I ask, save from what? Is that subtle? Is it sublime? Save from what? Save from question. Where will the one who, where will the one in whom Christ isn't found end up? Let me take you to the third verse, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9. God, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is only one place that fits that description, and that is hell. Uneasy doctrine for the cultural and educated to stomach. But it is all over the Gospels. Does hell refer to a literal place? Is it literal? Well, I won't read the whole thing, but you notice that this chapter, I loved it. I colored it so many times. Bernard Rams is his name, old Baptist theologian, his textbook we used in seminary, and he had a chapter on hell. I was really happy to read this. He said this, a question as to whether descriptions of hell and heaven are literal or symbolic is not the point. The point is that they are valid analogical descriptions of inescapable realities. Just recognizing the language, language is not that which is signified, it signifies. It's representative. So you could say, hell is fiery, or hell is like fiery burning place, but it captures the sense of inescapable pain, loneliness, alienation forever. We believe that there is such a place, of course, our culture makes a lot of that. Uh, I don't think he's a top-notch uh, 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 screenwriter. Evan Goldberg one time said, we always found it funny that people genuinely think we are going to hell. Yeah, that Evan in your office, that Evan in your family. 
And we're educated people. We don't like to be belittled, right? Because believing in hell means that you're not educated. You are not very eloquent. But we have a message that hate the world hates. Whether literal or analogical, we believe that there's a place. Are you embarrassed about having to believe in hell, whether literal or analogical? But I'm not blaming you necessarily. If you feel embarrassed about hell, it's not entirely your fault. Because church made it disappear. What hell? This is what happened. A short, simple, most recent version of whatever happened to hell in the church. About 30 years ago, the pendulum was way toward the side of only salvation. Church only talked about salvation. That's where the pendulum was. Therefore, Dallas Willard, in his famous book, Divine Conspiracy, made this comment, church is fighting over how one gets saved. So we're fighting over this how you get saved. No, this is how you get saved. They're fighting, but they agree, quote, they agree that getting into heaven after death is the sole target of salvation. Rob Bell, if you know who he is, he wrote many books, 2008, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, 2011, Love Wins. He named that kind of theology, only cares about going to heaven and not really concerned about the earth. This is what he wrote. It's called the evacuation theology that says, figure out the ticket, say the right prayer, get the right formula, and then we'll go somewhere else. It leads us to Jesus who endlessly speaks of the renewal of all things. You got to care about earth as well, but we don't think about, I'm going to go to heaven, rapture. What about heaven? I don't care. So both Willard and uh, Rob Bell saw the same thing. So if you don't like Rob Bell for his kind of postmodernistic liberal theology, well, Willard, we don't seem like that. But both saw the same thing. Salvation is important. Look, so uh, Rob Bell, in his 2011 book, said something that I thought was very true. He said, there are two hells. There's hell now on earth. Like in 1970, there was a hell in Rwanda when Hutu were murdering Tutsis at the tune of 800,000, and they were either genuine or nominal Catholics and Christians, and they were doing that. That's called hell. And there's a hell right now in Ukraine. And suddenly, to the unborn, abortion clinic is hell, unless you think there's a blob of tissues. In which case, you don't have to listen to me on this one. But I believe as a human being, so it's hell. We got hell on earth right now. And church, what are you doing? I'm waiting to avoid hell, on, hell beyond death. So because it's hell now, it is right that we engage in social justice ministry, food pantry, orphanage, IJM, because there's hell on earth right now. But Rob Bell, I like it, but then he says, there's hell later, after death. And Jesus teaches us to take both seriously. That was a good book. But he began to entertain, maybe hell is not eternal. So a little after, he did say, hell, smile, there's no hell. He began to emphasize only hell on earth now. And completely got rid of hell beyond Death. Time magazine, when it used to be a really good magazine. Hell, what if there is no hell? Then you may accuse me of no hell. Are you sure about this? Are you creating a straw man's case? Are you saying that evangelicals stop talking about hell? Look, man, a ship to no hell had already taken place on the mission field a long time ago. You talk about hell or sinners to non-white people in global south, you be called resurrection of colonialist mentality again. This is Robertson McQuilkin. He passed away, former president of Columbia International University, seminary and mission leader. This is what he said in 2006. I use this line many times. It's really good. Under the banner to the glory of God, Conservative missionaries. Missionaries are attempting to a holistic mission that includes health, social justice, education, social justice, IAM, social justice. That's good. 
hell on earth. But the other love in terms of a rescue mission from a bad ending, saving people from going to hell, well, that is so offensive to the postmodern, we mustn't even mention it, let alone emphasize it. Look, if you came to missions or conference this time, well, no biggie. You know, I was so special because we still believe that we preach the gospel to save them going to hell. You ain't going to hear that from a lot of mission conferences. Why? It's not sexy enough. It's not smart enough. It's not, it's not sophisticated enough. Hey, I'm educated. Bring it on. I, I wrote a whole textbook on missionology. Bring it on. I believe in hell. Why? Well, I didn't write the book. God wrote the book. I, I have to faithfully follow it. But I use nuance. I'll wait for a relationship to build before I throw or present the question. I get that. I'm not going to throw a first girl I met. You want to marry me? Are you crazy? Some have done that, and they dearly pay with a blow to their face. It's well-deserved. Therefore, the magazine in which that article was found raises Lost missions. What have happened to the idea of rescuing people from hell? Whatever happened to that idea of rescuing people from hell? you are going to see fatal result when we ignore how to avoid hell beyond death while only addressing hell on earth. What if there's no hell? I'm going to make a very controversial regard, but it really isn't. The so-called gospel that omits hell is useless to save anyone, i.e., a different gospel, Galatians 1.6, referring to people at circumcision, work, to faith, to say that that's how you get saved. There is such a thing called different gospel, and when you leave out hell, I believe that that kind of gospel is useless to save. How so? I need to give you a warrant. Let me do that. Luke 12, Luke 13, 23, someone asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to, are only a few people going to be saved? Rescued from going to hell? Uh, very disturbing answer. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Let me see whether we can see this in a little different angle. The wide door is a so-called gospel that says there's no hell. Don't worry about hell. You enter through that door, then you're not going to find salvation. But the narrow door in this context is one actually does have hell. Now, why do I say this? Do you think hell is over the top? Oh, gosh, God, you're loving, but also just. But even you mean just, like hell, eternal torment, everlasting? Uh, you think, you know, you're not all that different from God, for we have received what we call communicable attributes of God. So sense of justice, we kind of have it, not like God. You know when he shows up? Imagine that Bernie Madoff stole all your retirement fund. You are penniless and literally out on the street. Imagine that Dr. Neri Nasser, the team doctor for U.S. women's gymnast team who sexually abused young gymnasts brought to him for cure, imagine that one of them was your daughter. And imagine that both of them received three-year suspended sentence. You fine with that? Of course not. That's when the sense of justice right? What? Crime not justly punished. The punishment doesn't correspond to the series of the crime committed. It's like that. What sin is like to a holy God. I can only analytically understand through my upsetness, my anger, when people who do things like that are given a slap on their hand. Sin is so horrific to a holy God. It took something like, it took something like suffering in hell to atone for it. Either we go there ourselves and serve our time and never come out, or someone goes there for us and to suffer for us, and that's the core of the gospel. Good news. Someone did suffer for us. But if someone was powerful and innocent enough that he had the power and the legal right to suffer only for three days, then
forth the benefit of what he did. That's the good news. So that you don't have to suffer for yourself. You know, uh, we just did the Apostles' Creed. Interestingly, uh, Reformed Church kept the world hell. We changed that. I don't know who changed it, but reformed in the Apostle Creed, he descended to hell. I personally believe that, but if you don't, I mean, you know. That one, I totally agree with the reformed church. Why? Unless somebody go to hell and suffer that kind of pain, God's legal requirement is not met. Does that word, God's righteous requirement, you're going to find that verse in Romans 8, 4, it says, God's, quote, righteous requirement, the church of God, fully met in us. Somebody met that righteous requirement, and that's Jesus Christ. It was horrific price that one paid. Hell. That is sin, justly punished. So this is how justice of God and social justice, social justice, are different and yet related. You have to start with justice of God. Don't do social justice unless you met the righteous requirement in you through Jesus Christ. After you met that requirement, then you can do social justice. They're not the same thing, but related. You do not save anyone through social justice. You improve the condition of the earth, which is very important. There are doctors who will go to the most difficult nation in the world to clean their teeth, pull their teeth, but they never share the gospel. Basically, I want you to go to hell with clean teeth. This message is difficult if you already categorically rejects hell. This is where many churches seem to be headed. Social justice only or mostly? Praise team, you can come on out. I only have one minute worth of talking. There are a number of ways I can end this, but now I'm going to come to you personally. You know this kind of message? You don't want to hear this too often. <laughs> That's how you can kill the church. But if without this message, you could have church with a false sense of confidence. I think Pastor Ulysses, toss and turn, not every single day, nobody does that, worrying about and concerned about, I don't know whether that person knows Jesus Christ. He says he does, but the way he acts, the way she acts, on a consistent basis, I don't know. Maybe I visit her, maybe I write a letter to her, I will send somebody over there, I go over there like Paul did. Warning, kind words, praying. <laughs> the most important matter in life to consider before we get busy with social justice. Have you met the righteous requirement of God's justice through Jesus? Answer that question for me. That's what Paul was saying. Examine yourself whether you are in the faith. Test yourself whether Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. Have you met the righteous requirement of the God in you by vicariously believing, by believing in the vicarious death of Jesus Christ on the cross? That he took that death on the cross and to go to hell for three days to meet that righteous requirement. He did that. And he lived to share that benefit with us. If you do not know that, today you should. This is what keeps our pastors up at night. Are you saved? Is Christ in you? We are saved by faith alone. Absolutely. It is by grace you have been saved. By faith. Not by works so that no one can boast the gift of God. So, let me end with how I kind of began. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? 
don't take any chance. If you're not certain, after praying today, or maybe at home, maybe it takes a few more days for you to consider. If you're not sure, don't leave this to chance. This is not a COVID test. This is a test of eternal destiny. I would call upon Pastor Ulysses, others who you really respect, and honestly talk to them. I don't know whether I know Christ. All the parameters should indicate that maybe I'm not. I'm so selfish, so narcissistic. My action prove it. Pastor, what do you think? And I know that no pastor would try to talk you out of it. Said, okay, let's pray. And to the power of the Holy Spirit, said, pray that. It is possible. But today, now I just hit the ball to your court. You need to check. It comes with the right confession, obviously. The word verify. Why don't we close our eyes? And uh, this is too much uh, important about question for me to say right now. But look, you're in different stage. Think along. I'm going to shut up now in this quietness. I don't know. Praise team has something else in mind. Do whatever you have in plan. But I want you to think about what all that said and ask God some questions.